Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Hello and welcome to Politics War Room with James Carville. And I'm Al Hunt, and we thank you for joining us. This week, we're joined by a senior former staffer to Ted Cruz, author of Gaslight, CNN contributor, and columnist at the bulwark, Amanda Carpenter. Now remember, we take your questions each episode, so write into politicswarroom at gmail.com or send a tweet to Politicon for next week's show. We'll get to as many as we can, and please tell us where you're from. This episode is sponsored by our friends, Blinkist. Please check out the link to our sponsors in the show notes. And we thank you for supporting these sponsors. It really helps to make this whole podcast happen. Please tell your friends about us and remind them to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. James Carville, uh, a lot to talk about. Let's talk about COVID uh, for a minute. There's a great, there's, there's a cross currents going on. The Biden administration delivered great news, I think, in saying that we're going to now get all vaccines necessary will be available by May. And they put together a deal to have other drug makers work with uh, Pfizer and Johnson and Johnson. Uh, I think that they deserve great credit for that. My guess is it was Jeff Science that did it. At the same time, you have Republicans like Greg Abbott in Texas and Ron DeSantis in Florida saying, let's open up, let's open up now. Uh, and I think that the danger here, and I think this is a winning issue for the Democrats over the long run if Biden succeeds. Uh, with this COVID, but the danger is that just as we see the light at the end of the tunnel, you know, we want to pretend we're there. And I, I think it was a year ago this weekend, James, was the last time we really went out to events. And, uh, you know, we can, if we have to wait a couple more weeks or another month or so, but be careful, wear masks, socially distance, no big events. That's really a test of the country. And boy, the Abbots and the Sanist are really, really doing a huge disservice to America. Yes, and and but one of the things that Democrat that it comes across it comes across to me, right? Is we seem too enthusiastic about closing down, right? I I I think it. I, I, look, I, I think it's called for. I think our governor of Louisiana is, you know, not not behaving in that manner. But and we seem too enthusiastic about not having in person learning. Right? Especially in schools, it, I was going to say you're yeah, right. It, 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 look, it's very difficult, and, and we've talked about it before. And the complexities that deal with this, the danger that you put school personnel in is real. The danger that these children, are, 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 we're really going to lose a lot. I mean, you know, 20 years from now, there's going to be a whole bevy of research just how much this held back student achievement uh, you know, emotional happiness, social ability to socialize, God knows what not. I mean, this is, I, I can't imagine this thing. Somebody did a study, I don't know how the hell they come up with it, but that for the next seven years, it'll take a quarter point off of GDP every year. Mm. But, okay, I, somebody could say that, but that I, I, it doesn't sound unreasonable. 
It, it, it doesn't sound unreasonable. You know, you take a third grader and you take them out for a year, there's going to be some impact on that. It's going to be just some impact. Particularly I mean, you know, for, for communities, uh, minority communities, oh, underprivileged oh, communities. I mean, oh, it's going to hit them yeah, so much oh. harder. And, and, oh, and um, you know, I mean, not only is the oh. learning terrible, but there's more abuse going on in those homes. There's oh. more help not being provided. I mean, oh, for those kids, it's just horrifying. A lot of people go to school. It's the best meal they get a day. Exactly. That's right, so the way they learn. You know, uh, look, that, that's, you know, we're going to really need uh, Mitt, Romney's, Mitt Romney's child care proposals. We're going to need a lot of stuff with, like like this. It, it, it It's just, I, I'm a former school teacher, and I, I couldn't imagine if I just lost the seventh grade. I mean, I'm, believe me, I didn't study that much. No. But you, you just, what would you do just sitting every day, and particularly if you have no money and, you know, your multi-generational house and people around you dying. I mean, it, it's awful. I, James, I know it depends depressing. on localities, but why can't most places say, all right, teachers have priority. They're up there with seniors and all the others because it's so important. If we're going to, if we're, amp, you know, really, really ramping up on the vaccines, you know, it should be possible with a crash. Price. Some people will resent it, say, hey, why should they get it? And I'm not getting it. You know, I'm a plumber or I'm a whatever, but that's okay. <clears throat> this is about kids. And I think I think the Republican charge about teachers' union is a little bit hollow, but there's some truth to it. And I, 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 I go back to, you know, I hate when people use anecdotal evidence or personal experience, but, you know, my friend Patty, who helped us in the Shenandoah Valley, is the last year, you know, she needs this year for her retirement from Virginia Public Schools, and her dad is a retired state trooper. He's 84 years old. She helps care for him. And she hasn't been vaccinated yet. But get her I mean, vaccinated. My point. My yeah, point I, is I mean, in Virginia's numbers are not, I mean, I, I mean, as a protocol, their numbers started out bad. They're, they're pretty good now. They're in the top half. I mean, there's not a lot of difference. I look at the numbers every day, and there's not. Is that it, it? But gee whiz, we can't prioritize older teachers too. I don't know. I, I, or I, something. I, agree. I mean, it, we just we gotta <clears throat> we gotta get the we gotta get these kids back in the classroom. It just mm. it's just essential. Yeah, no, I, I, I really think we need a crash program to get teachers, you know, starting with older teachers, but we ought to set a date. I don't know, you pick the date. By April the 5th, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're going to have a target to have all teachers vaccinated. And they will jump ahead of some people. There's no question. But yeah, I, you know, it's and, necessary. And I, look, I'm, I am pleased but not surprised. When, when they put Mr. Zients in charge of this and – it just you know, talent matters. Let me tell you, it, does. it just matters. And they totally committed to this, and they're just cranking these vaccines out now. And yeah, he you know, he is he is an extraordinary public servant. There's no question yeah. in that. And, and, James, and they, what to it? Go ahead. I, no, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, go ahead. All right, no. no, I was going to change the subject uh, and and talk about the guy who was the star uh, a year ago or 11 months ago of this whole COVID response. The governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo. There were people, there were Democrats who were telling me then he was going to be the Democratic nominee, uh, which I always thought was absurd. But he really was, he, 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 was, he, did, he did fabulous in those early days of explaining to people about what they were doing. He's now, to put it mildly, hit, hit a, a, a roadblock where his mere survival as governor is at stake. He's had three women accuse him of sexual, uh, I guess you'd say sexual harassment. 
uh, and he has a problem with the way they've treated elderly in nursing homes. On the sexual harassment case, I don't have any idea what the truth is. Uh, there's an investigation by the AG. That'll be, uh, I think, determinative. Uh, he says he never touched anyone. This is not a Harvey Weinstein issue. Uh, but on the other hand, he was a 63-year-old governor asking a 25-year-old young woman aide about her sex life, which certainly is not certainly is untoward. But I think the problem that Andrew Cuomo has, let's just assume for a second that that, that, that all is, that's there is out there, is that he's a bully and has been all of his life. People don't like him. And when you hit trouble, when you hit difficulties like this, goodwill matters. And he doesn't have a whole lot of goodwill, even among a lot of Democrats in New York. Yeah, I, I will say I watched his press conference today, and he was he he is was good enough to say, okay, let's see what the attorney general's report says. I mean, his whole political—he may not have a political future. He may be hard enough to win a fourth term anyway. But the, that that well, you know what I heard at least myself. I said, okay, well, let's just wait and see what happens. I think he bought himself at least that much time. And, and I thought the guy, honestly, and I'm, I'm sure he got caught and like anybody else, I thought he was going to start crying. Now, I don't know if he was crying for the women that he made feel uncomfortable himself. I suspect he might have been crying for himself. But, but I mean, his ass is in a crack and he knows it. Yeah, and he's not a, I mean, he's a smart guy. He's a tough guy. He's a, you know, a, a, a very accomplished politician in some ways, but he's not a nice guy. And, uh, you know, it's, you're right. I, I watched it too. And I thought, boy, he's, he's really getting emotional. And I must say my immediate reaction was, I wonder if he's faking it. I don't know yeah. if that's fair. may not be, but that's Andrew Cuomo. Uh, yeah. Uh, I, with I, other I, people I don't know, but that. he converted just who cares what a 76 year old guy from Louisiana thinks. But I, my thing is, I think people will say, okay, let's give him to the report and see what it says. Yeah. And I do think he he did buy himself some time. Now maybe he, you know, got a stay of execution and going to hang him in two weeks. I, I I don't know that, but he at least he said the he said the right things. So let's wait. Let's see. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and a, the investigation will be incredible, and the report will be credible. It's conducted by the uh, attorney general, who is no great ally of Andrew Cuomo. Uh, and I think they'll do a thorough job yeah, and a very, a very rough and tumble game. I right. Th I and I, oh boy, is it ever rough and tumble. And I think if I were Andrew Cuomo, what I would worry about is even the best result that comes back and says, Hey, as he said today, he never touched anyone. He had a really awkward, weird, bullying sense of humor, but he said things that really hurt, hurt young women, you know, but, uh, you know, he didn't do anything that falls into the category of any, any uh, you know criminal action certainly, you know even that's not going to be good for him. So I I he may survive, but boy, you know all bets are off for a fourth term. The, the, the one thing I will say is that he's not very good at this kind of stuff. <laughs> no, he doesn't. He's good at being in command. He's not he's very not smooth. Good at hey, can can right. I kiss you? You know. <laughs> right, 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 right. Honest to God. I mean, yeah, I, I maybe he could. You know, two of the. People that were arrested, I saw this. I, I wish I was skilled enough to remember the site I saw it on. But two of the people that were arrested for breaching the council were dating coaches. <laughs> Maybe they could have talked to Andrew. 
I don't know. I'm not sure I would have gone to them, but anyway, right. we'll see. Okay, I just thought it was funny. That <laughs> oh, People boy, have a coach. You know, politics ain't being bad, and particularly no. in New York State. And they, and they all hate each other. I mean, the mayor hates the governor, and the senator doesn't like any Welcome of to them. California. And the, yeah, it's even yeah, worse. One party, than- one party states are like that. Yeah. And yeah. by the way, he's going for a fourth term. That generally doesn't end well. Yeah. Somebody yeah. been in power for that would be sixteen years. It's a long time. You know, he, yeah, he I, might I, have flown. Yeah, you're right. Uh, you know, he did come back once before. He was uh he, he was running for governor oh, and he got wiped that. out. Oh, and oh, he man, made he made a pretty remarkable political comeback. But uh huh? you know, if uh, if you ask a lot of New York Democrats they, they, some of them fear him, but they don't like him. Uh, and uh, he, he's been a bully. We'll see if it catches up. Yeah, you don't I, hear a lot. Of, well, I want to say about Andrew. He's a great guy. You know, I mean, Bill Clinton and right. Ronald Reagan had that going for him. People really liked him. They did. And that, they that did. Made a, that made a profound difference. Right. People They're willing him. to give him a break. Uh, yeah. right. So, right. But you're right. We'll see. We'll see what happens. Hey, James, our guest is a really good journalist, Amanda Carpenter. She has an interesting trajectory. She once wrote for the right-wing site Human Events, worked for Jim DeBent, and was senior communications chief for Senator Ted Cruz. For the past five years, she returned to journalism, commentator, columnist for the must-read anti-Trump site, The Bulwark, Disaffected, They Are Disaffected Conservatives. James, one more note. Amanda is one of three very notable people whose birthday is November 20th, along with Joe Biden and my wife. So I want to tell you, Amanda, it's good to have you on the show. Oh, that's great. Thank you. You wrote that CPAC, a circus, there ever was one that ended on Sunday, rehab Trump as the leader of the Republican Party. Tell us. Well, it's really quite fascinating, don't you think? The, The guy got impeached just a few weeks ago. Because of his role in the insurrection, you know, got a number, not enough Republicans in my mind to vote for that impeachment, but a handful. And yet just a few weeks later, CPAC managed to gather a crowd of thousands to cheer his name, warmly receive him, allow him to give an hour and a half speech airing all his grievances once again, just aired on Fox News, allowed Trump to raise millions more dollars, all just within a couple of weeks, weeks after Senate Majority Leader said he was morally and practically responsible for the insurrection. I know McConnell voted to acquit him, but still those words are important. And to go from that moment down to Orlando to thousands of people cheering him, I, I, I think he's been rehabbed. I think that is the purpose that CPAC and people like Matt Schlapped and others served for him. Let me, let's just tell our listeners that CPAC is, a, I think, a 47-year-old uh, conservative organization spawned actually by Ronald Reagan, but that has really taken a decidedly more you know, pro-Trump tone. Amanda, I, I think you make a good point, but these are fire breathers. These are mm-hmm. the conspiracy nuts, the haters. And yet he only got 55% in the 24 presidential preference. Might that be a harbinger of sorts? I understand that people are looking for signs of weakness with Trump. And in previous CPACs that Donald Trump has spoken at or was just in the running for, he he didn't win the straw polls then either. Um, You know, my former boss, Ted Cruz, won one. You know, this 
the CPAC straw poll isn't the end-all, be-all. The point that I think people really need to pay attention to is that this guy got creamed in an election. He lost the House, the Senate, the White House. He was impeached twice. And there's still an audience for him. And this wasn't just something that he put on. He said, I'm having a rally come. There were people willing to put on this show for him. I, this is within the, the conservative movement. CPAC, I mean, I know everybody laughs at it. It's actually an important part of my first coming to Washington for the very first time and learning about politics. So to me, it's a formative event. And I think it remains a formative event for a lot of young people who want to learn about politics and just network and go see the booths and just kind of see what the whole thing is about. And the show, the display, that is still a show of force among the grassroots that they can they can do this. They can command an audience. They can bring all the television cameras down to cover this event wall to wall from Wednesday to Sunday, gavel to gavel for a guy who was responsible for inciting an insurrection. I think that is tremendously important. Yeah, scary too. I, I will tell you that many, many, many years ago, uh, certainly before you even knew there was a CPAC, I debated the conservative columnist Robert Novak at a CPAC. Was it Must fun? You say, I, <clears throat> I, it was great fun. I, I, I wrote that Bob, <laughs> pitched, Bob pitched the shutout. I mean, there wasn't, there wasn't a great receptivity. And, you know, there were, there were some crazies and some loons and all that kind of stuff. But there also were some serious conservatives. I didn't agree with a lot of it, but they were serious talking about serious issues. This was, this was just crazy time down there. This was just a whole bunch of, of, of kooks and nuts. They had eight sessions, I think, on the, uh, on, on the fraudulent election uh, uh, charge. But, but he also said, he targeted Republicans more than I've ever seen before for mm-hmm. Republican, for defeat. And when they do with their view on taxes, national security, abortion, it was whether they were loyal to him. Liz Cheney, Lisa Murkowski, Congressman Anthony Gonzalez. He says, let's beat him in primaries. He's got a lot riding on that now, doesn't he? Yeah, and you know, I, I think it's important to note the evolution of CPAC. Of course, it's always been a little kooky, but it did, you know, when I came to it for the first time in 2005, it was perceived in my mind of being, you know, ideological. Like the people were there for a little bit of the show and the carnival, but there were ideas, right? Like you would go to the booth for the flat tax. You There'd be the gold bug guys there. There'd be the, you know, right. closed borders guys there. At least the booths were focused on some kind of policy, not chasing around a golden Trump statue. <laughs> and so that's how <laughs> things have changed. And as it's become just more Trump cult-like, his speech is about nothing but solidifying support behind himself. It was about grievances over the election and targeting Republicans and burnishing his legacy and trying to make something uh, substantial out of that. And so to me, it's sort of nothing new because Donald Trump, he's strongest when he's fighting. And the reason he got on the stage was by being willing to fight fellow Republicans. That's what made him stand out. That's what made him different. That's why people come because the movement, they just want the fight and they really don't care as much about winning as long as you're fighting. And so that's something that's hard to wrap your head around, but I think is really evident when, when you watch this stuff unfold. You, you know, you're so right. Mitt Romney won that CPAC poll four times, Jack, the late Jack Kemp three times, George W. Bush once. None of them would have been welcome in Orlando uh, this year. It's, it, it really has always conservative, but it's become, I think, a lot kookier. James Carville. Oh, oh, 
Thank you, Amanda. But to say the least, your pedigree as a conservative is, is pretty impressive. I mean, human events, Jim DeMint, I mean, I, I knew sentiment a little bit. He's a kind of an apple guy, apple guy. But I mean, he was really, really, really a right-wing guy. And we'll just say that Ted Cruz is a, a real deep, profound conservative, and leave it at that for the moment. Mitt Romney won four CPAC polls. He has a child care proposal that is a liberal. I'm like, this is too good to be true. If this, this would have not gotten through the Democratic Senate caucus in 2013. And what's going on over, over there? Wait, you, you got a, the cult of Trump. You got one of the most prominent Republicans of my lifetime uh, with a, a proposal that can only be described as, you know, really generous, a real hand of, of big government, if you will. Uh, obligates the United States. It's not horribly expensive, but it it, it has some stick of shock involved with it. it how, how is Mitt Romney going to be in the same party with Donald Trump, and how is James Carville going to be in the same party with Smith College? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, it looks like we, you know, we always talk about it, and it never happens. Do you think we might be on the verge of some kind of a realignment here? Perhaps. I'm not sure if it's going to be a realignment in a long-term, you know, sort of faction that breaks off from both parties. But I do see a willingness for people to rethink things in liberating ways. And I think Mitt Romney's always sort of been there, right? You know, when he's governor of Massachusetts, he was the one that did uh, mm. Rom- Romney care, which was the groundwork for Obamacare, because he was willing to yeah. impose an individual mandate, which, you know, was thought of by the Heritage Foundation. But then once Obama took it up, that became something that was abhorrent on the national level. Um, you know, I could argue both both sides of that. And I think states should be willing right. to experiment. But Romney, in the way that he's been singled out, that's kind of given him more freedom, I, I think, to think about things. And there is a what? real appetite among I don't want to say all Republicans, but you see other people playing around with this reformicon, populist stuff. How how can we help families um, and be willing to use government money to do it? Because the Democrats are going to do something, so let's let's offer something and start thinking about this, and not just be adamantly against spending any money in this way on the national level. So I think that's where he's coming from, and. Mitt doesn't seem quite like a policy guy, but I think he's a guy who's interested in looking at solutions. And being so outcast from the Trump party gives him more room to say, screw it, let's try this. Well, let me find two things about Senator Romney. Number one is he actually, his stated position in 2012 was he was for the deportation of 14 million people who have been here. All right. That, That I don't think he meant it. But he certainly said that that was his policy. And he met with Trump after Trump had done everything and Trump was elected and went to dinner and, you know, sucked up to Trump because he wanted to be secretary of state. So I I, I think he's shown real courage uh, here. I think he's he, he, a, a, a good guy, but he's not immune from politics, to say the least. Oh, of course not. Yeah, yeah. I think in this, maybe me saying he's willing to try things means he's willing to find new coalitions as they see fit, right? This is sort of what he got in trouble for in the 2012 primary when they said, 
who I forget what advisor said it, but you know, after the primary, it's just etch a sketch. You just shake it and the campaign and start over on policy. So, you know, right. how true and committed is he to each idea at the time? I couldn't really tell you. But what he does seem committed to is resisting the Trump impulse. And I give, you know, I've been never Trump from the start because I think it was so clear where his authoritarian <laughs> tendencies were. But after he won in 2016, I don't fault Republicans who tried to swarm around him and maybe try to get in a position where they could mitigate the damage. Um, and I'd like to think that's what Romney was trying to do at that dinner. I, I wouldn't have gone to dinner with him. I don't like that my former boss, Ted Cruz, went to dinner with them. But for people who are in an elected positions of responsibility, I, I don't fault them for trying at that moment in time. So, you know, turn back over there. Do you see in your lifetime a chance for you to return to the Republican Party? I mean, what what what, what would have what would have to happen for you to say, you know what, I'm I started out as a as a Republican and I'm going to end up that way. What would it take for Amanda Carpenter to embrace a party that she grew up with and served for so well and so long? I mean, I still consider myself a Republican. Um, you know, I did vote for Joe Biden in the last election because I thought, you know, obviously there's somebody with who who has authoritarian tendencies and there's a guy that doesn't. And so we have an interest in serving the country and supporting the better option there. Um, but I just, I, I, I don't see Republicans to support in my direct sphere. Now, let's say someone like Adam Kinzinger or Liz Cheney wanted to try something. Could I maybe go work for someone like them? I don't even know if they'd have me given the outspoken role that I've taken on so many things. But yeah, if there's people there who want to get back to being decent people of character and have a genuine interest in preserving the role of government in a way that helps and protects people, I'm all for that. Um, but I, I I don't see the party going in that direction now, but I have no problem supporting and trying to lift up people who are trying to do that. That may be... Uh, I don't think Liz Cheney's... I don't think yeah. Liz Cheney's going to work. That may be a long haul. Yeah, well, hey, I'm looking. <laughs> Yeah, you, you, you know, one place I suspect you're not looking is your old boss, Ted Cruz, who you've mentioned a couple of times. He uh, engaged in that ridiculous and I think dishonest challenge to the presidential election. He fled to Cancun while his constituents were freezing. Uh, he echoed Trump uh, at CPAC. What's his calculation? And has he been helped or hurt in Texas and and his national aspirations with all this? Yeah, I think once... I will say for not just myself, but other Cruz folks who I know and I'm in contact with, when he offered to argue that ridiculous case before the Supreme Court to cancel votes in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan, that was that was kind of the point of no return um, for a lot of people. Um, I know there are people who have worked with Cruz, served him. I, I left his office in the summer of 2015. Um, but people who have served him and understood, like, maybe he's got to go along with this election stuff for a little while, but it'll burn out. It's like that infamous quote from, I think, a McConnell aide when they told the Post, what's the harm in letting him run this out? That was kind of the attitude. They weren't expecting that Cruz would keep going with it and keep going with it all the way to January 6th. And this isn't just something within the Cruz camp but largely I hear from Republicans is that they are 
incredibly dismayed that after after January 6th and after things got worse, because there were a lot of people, the bitter enders, willing to just you know hold their nose and go along with it, thinking after January 6th, he's gone, we will have a chance to start over, Joe Biden will be inaugurated, and maybe things can kind of go back to the way they were. After the insurrection, there's no going back. There's no going back after that. That is something you can't wipe away. It's something that's going to last forever for the Republican Party. And so there's just a lot of people grappling with that. And given Cruz's central role in objecting to the results of the election just before the rioters breached the Capitol, that is something very, very difficult for even the most committed Cruz supporters to grapple with. Well, I agree, but this is also a guy who uh, then uh, wrapped his arm around Trump in 2017 mm-hmm. after Trump had said that his, his daddy had uh, maybe conspired to kill John F. Kennedy and that uh, his wife was ugly. I mean, I don't really appreciate most people who would say that. That has been a question I have exchanged messages with among staff who were there from the beginning, like in 2013. Was he like this all along? Did we miss it? Um, there's no way for us to know we were too close to it. I, I, I certainly didn't see that. Um, I can tell you that honestly. And even until after Trump won the election and he was having the dinners with Trump, I, I didn't agree with it, but I could kind of see the argument that, okay, he's a Texas Senator. He has to represent the people of Texas. And if he wouldn't meet with Trump, that would be petty and selfish and it would be putting his own ego before the interests of his voters. Okay? Like, that's that was a story I think he told himself. It was a story I was told. Didn't like it, but like, okay, whatever. But then going all in on the 2020 campaign, and again, the election stuff, which was so provably false, and to watch someone who built his campaign and reputation based on, like, this, I'm a smart constitutional lawyer— throw it all away um, for something that was so obviously false, again, is something like, okay, that that is over. Whatever, it didn't really matter who he was in 2013 through the early Senate years. This is what it is now. And for someone that's willing to just do all this in the pursuit, which I think is hopeless, of consolidating and attracting the Trump base for a 2024 run— is not only embarrassing, but just a gross, gross miscalculation of what it takes to win anyway, because winning presidential candidates always rebuild a new coalition. They never coast off somebody else's coattails. And so it's it's just hard to watch, to be honest. Amanda, let me try one more and then turn it over to James to pose this. Um, your colleague at the Bulwark, Bill Crystal, said it really is in the anti-Trump Republican conservatives to have Joe Biden be moderately successful, because if it's a failed presidency and there's a backlash, that likely would redound to the advantage of the Trump wing of the Republican Party. What's your take on that? Oh, I agree with that. I mean, I we well, A, we should all want Joe Biden to be successful in fighting the pandemic and getting the economy in order just because we should be Americans first. Um, but also, politically, you want a moderate Democrat to be successful, because if he's not successful— I mean, think about what would have happened in the primaries. If Joe Biden didn't win, Bernie Sanders probably would have got the nomination and Trump would have creamed him. Trump would have creamed him. If it's Trump versus a Bernie AOC ticket, Trump wins 
every time. There's That's just what is going to happen. And so if you want good outcomes on the national level, I, I think you want people who have good governing philosophies. And the moderate wing, I don't think is the strongest wing in the Democratic Party right now, but it is the winning wing. And it is the wing that has proven it can beat the authoritarian wing of the Republican Party. And so as long as those are the chess pieces on the table now, that's how I would agree with Bill it should be played. James. So, uh, Amanda, the, let, let's talk about the, the Never Trump and the bulwark. And by the way, thank you. About, also a bulwark writer. I, right. I, I, I'm a bulwark writer, and, and I, I, I love Tim and, and Bill Crystal and, uh, you know, Charlie Sykes has been on the show. And uh, I had a lot of friends in, in the Lincoln Project. You know, uh, Stuart, uh, you know, for sure, but Molly Joan Fast. Yeah, they're helping you guys like out. You should be friends with them. <laughs> right, but but they had, they ran into a little, <laughs> they ran into Yeah, to put it mildly. <laughs> uh, didn't uh, run into, has that like damaged the Never Trump brand any? Oh, the, uh, the implosion of the Lincoln Project? Um, I don't know. I don't know. Yes. There's certainly... There's certainly, you know, people in the Trump wing who want to use the collapse of that particular project to tar everyone in that space. Um, I don't think it's been successful. I like it. it, I I haven't seen it. We're not really bothered by it. Um, I I don't I don't think so. But the never Trumpers are always going to be a target. Um, I'm actually surprised it's been a little quiet on that front lately because, you know, it was. You know, Sarah Longwell, who runs Republican Voters Against Trump, it was always her calculation that, you know, in order to beat Trump, as long as the Democrats support, you know, a moderate-ish candidate who isn't named Bernie Sanders, and we can convince just one or two percent of Republicans who are reluctant about Trump to peel off and maybe support Joe Biden this one time, uh, Trump is gone because we didn't have to change the whole Republican Party to defeat Trump. I mean, that's kind of the genius thing about it. And so she's been wildly successful with that. The ads that she created, I mean, really just crowdsourcing little cell phone videos from Republicans all over the place, Texas, North Carolina, South Carolina, just talking on their phone. And kind of some of them were like therapy sessions saying, you know, I can't believe the party's doing this. And Trump, I just, I can't take it anymore. And that was kind of the resounding theme. I can't take it anymore. This guy, I just can't look at him. He's got to get out of there. And making those into ads and putting them online and just giving Republicans who were maybe feeling like they were the outcasts and not being able to go along with it, giving them kind of a community and reassurance that, you know what, it's okay. It's okay. You can not be for the Republican this time because things are so out of whack and you're not sacrificing your whole identity. It's why it was Republican voters against Trump. It wasn't Republicans who were becoming Democrats um, and it worked. People have done the studies on it, show that that was successful in converting voters in a way that was persuasive and wasn't like these over-the-top psychological warfare ads that I think some of the Lincoln Project was doing to get in Trump's head, which, you know, probably had some benefit too. But, you know, there's different tracks and different approaches that people took. And I think the things that Sarah was doing with Republican voters against Trump, you know, what we're doing at Bulwark, is successful, and so it's fun to be a part of it. So we had January 6th, and, of course, McConnell gave the speech late at night or early in the morning, and there was this kind of sense of, all right, you've gone too far. 
and now they're having the Senate hearings, yeah. and you know, even Chuck Grassley and you know Ron Johnson. I was really Antifa, and they still that still has currency out there. I, I mean, it's 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 breathtaking. Yeah, I, you know, even you know Cruz was trying to yeah, well, you know, but on the other hand, kind of thing. I, I, I that. I, I, it just goes to show you how hardwired people are. Yeah. I mean, I hope if something like that ever happened to a Democrat, I, geez, I, like acknowledge that these people are freaking nuts. Well, what I'd like to see the Democrats do, there should be a round of ads or, you know, direct mail, attack, whatever, whatever y'all do on the Democratic side, explaining how this shows how uninterested they are in protecting the homeland, because that's what I see. I see a bunch of senators committed to this lie, and Ron Johnson may believe it at this point. I really can't tell. He may be so suckered into whatever he's reading online that he thinks Antifa was there because he had nice Wisconsin people that came to the Capitol, and he knows they weren't the ones on the front lines. I I don't know what he actually believes anymore, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because what they were doing that hearing when they had FBI Director Ray, who could actually give them real information, who talked to them about how domestic terrorism was on the rise— They've arrested, you know, three times the number of white supremacists in the last three years than ever before. I mean, this is interesting stuff. And they want to play whataboutism and what about Antifa and tell me where the Antifa was. And they keep getting the same answer. And it's like Josh Hawley is asking about how are you tracking cell phone data? Because he seems more concerned that they're tracking his communications with somebody rather than understanding how to stop this from happening again. And that's and that's the big target rich area that I wish Democrats get so, Abigail Spangmayer, go get these great, you know, military vet people right. out there and say they're not protecting our yeah. homeland. They let oh, this happen. They're uninterested in governing. I mean, these are not national security conservatives. They're clickbait conservatives looking right. to make it big on Fox News. Let's let's forget Blue Lives Matter too, because one of them got like trampled to death. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, Isn't that injured weird? They and still suicides and everything. But th- this is my question: Is are these people? So, in other words, Democratic Party, for for good reason, which I totally support. We we, we need the African American vote to win elections. All right. Mm-hmm. Are they making a calculation that they can't win an election without these white nationalists? I mean, is that why <laughs> at some point somebody come in and say, "Look, dude, this is like that." 28% of the party, and, you know, you turn your back on them, but you start this crap, we start working with the Democrats on that, you're going to lose a bunch of elections. It's in our political interest to to try to defer this and talk about other things other than the real issue. Is there some possibility that at some level the people that breach the Capitol and people that they speak for represent a, a portion of the Republican vote that they simply calculate they can't do without. I think that's what happened in Georgia. I think they tried that in Georgia. I What happened in Georgia between the election and the runoff, I think, is pivotal and foundational to what happened on January 6th. So everybody knows in that race, Kelly Loeffler, David Perdue won their jungle primaries to face off against uh, John Ossoff and Reverend Warnock. So in between that time, Kelly Loeffler kind of became the main candidate. David Perdue just kind of evaporated into the wallpaper, and they tried to make Kelly Loeffler versus Warnock the headline race. And if you watched how she campaigned, 
there were several events where she was hanging out. The the militia it was appearing with her over the summer and through um, the weeks in in the general election as her personal security. Now think about that. Kelly Loeffler is worth what five hundred million dollars. Super rich. Does she need the Georgia militia and the three percent to show up as her personal security? She could have told them no. She was a sitting U.S. senator. She can have the best security that Capitol Police can provide. But no, she allowed herself to be ringed around by the militia, um, hanging out with Marjorie Taylor Greene for votes. They're campaigning together. That that tells me that she thought that was a part of the base because Kelly Loeffler was appointed to that seat by Brian Kemp, and the whole idea was that, you know, this ultra-successful business lady was going to appeal to suburban women that the Republican Party was losing, and that all went out the damn window because she started campaigning base only and hanging out with the kooks. Um, because I think what they understood is that 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 is the Republican base, at least in that state, part, a, a good part of it, and she can't cross it. And so when all these other Trump people went down pushing the big election lie, saying don't vote because of Dominion voting, whatever, whatever, whatever. They never crossed them. They couldn't cross them once. Kelly Loeffler was asking for the guy who appointed her to resign because he just did his job and certified the election. I mean, that's how nutty things got. And I just, I think all everything that happened between November and January in Georgia is worth a thorough examination because it shows a lot of what is wrong with the Republican Party. I mean, look, it did fail, but that doesn't change the fact that you have militias showing up at events and nobody is blinking an eye because apparently they're, they're a voting base that can't be asked to leave. Amanda, that's a fascinating point. Uh, but don't really you think that, really that, that, that race was an element, too? She was running against the black. Oh, guy. sure. They wanted to make uh, that the headline and, for and, sure. And that was right. And and so now, having lost, what they're trying to do is uh, crack down on voting down there and limit, uh, you know, voting. Oh, only in on Philadelphia Sundays and Detroit. And, what are you talking about? Well, no, they're t- Georgia, I'm too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe Arizona. Amanda Carpenter, you are a great guest. Uh, and I can, uh, I will remember your birthday. I promise. Oh, that's great. <laughs> uh, and, uh, November the 20th. I like wine. Boy, I like roses. We... You know, whatever you want to send is fine. <laughs> Good. And we want you back before then, though. Okay. okay? All right. Great. Absolutely. And that August 19th, Bill Clinton, Mary Madeline, and Tiffa Gore. <laughs> oh, wow. That's pretty good. That's pretty, you know, I, you know, I'll, 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 it's an equal match. November 20th and August 19th. Okay, good. All right. Thank uh, you, man. All right, thank Very you. insightful. Thank you. Very insightful. Thanks. Bye. We, we really learned something significant here. She was, her point about yeah. to, to more it, carefully examine that November 3 to January 5 is right. a really, really interesting. And they just calculated we cannot win without these, without white right. supremacists. Right. That, right. That, 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 you know, that, that integral to our, Right. I'll much in the same way that 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 you know the African American vote or, or the, the the union vote is essential to the Democratic coalition. Mm-hmm. White supremacy is an essential part of the coalition of a twenty first century political party. Right. Digest that for a second. You know, and as our 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 great guest twice, I think from months ago, Kathleen Ballou said. <laughs> 
these groups all are together. I mean, whether it's the white nationalists, whether it's the Nazis, whether it's, you know, some of the other right wing militia groups, uh, they do form a coalition of sorts and they know each other. And that's what yeah, but I mean, yes, it's like the Democrats get heat. Maybe some of it is justified of being in the, yeah. in the throes of the of the yeah. teachers unions. OK, yeah. you can have varying opinions about teachers unions. They're not white nationalists. OK, they right. don't. <laughs> they don't they kill don't, people. They, you're right, right. I mean, they, they might <laughs> a, be not good difference. for somebody's idea of education reform or, or whatever people right. would have. But gee whiz, I mean, oh. you know, Joe Klein is going to, you know, wrap the New York City public school janitors around a Democratic Party like it's the worst thing that ever happened in the world. Hey, I well, haven't I read know. Joe Klein in a while. I read Klein? it a while, but it's just he was always. You no, know. I know. I like him. As I, I like Joe Klein. It's just like, yeah, but you, you know, but yeah, we got white nationalists, but you got teachers unions. Oh, <laughs> well, wait a minute. Stop just a second here. <laughs> Hey, James, when you don't have free time, you can't read or work on personal development. Let me tell you about the Element Life Pack for learning new things and getting ahead. It's an incredible app. It solves this problem, and we really recommend it. It's called Blinkist. Blinkist is really unique. It works on your phone, your tablet, or your web browser. Blinkist takes the best key takeaways, the need-to-know information for busy and successful people like you, James Carville, from thousands of nonfiction books and condenses them down into just 15 minutes so you can start using that information right away. And with its audio feature, Blinkist makes it easy to finish a book anywhere, anytime. 12 million people are enjoying Blinkist's massive and growing library right now. There's everything from self-help to business, health, and history, along with the latest titles from bestseller lists and the classic nonfiction titles you always meant to read, but you never had time too. James, you must love this. I, I do. And I'd love to to get these guys to do a little small segment of the show is they do it really well. Who who does this for? I mean, somebody is really smart to be able to take some, you know, some of the complex books that they do and reduce them. And it's it's, it's very effective the way you do it. I, I, I'd just be curious how, they, how they're so good at doing this. It, 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 it's not easy. It's not easy to condense you know, it's it's old saying I, I I'd write a shorter letter, but I don't have the time. They do have great books out there. Two recent favorites are Becoming by Michelle Obama and Untrumping America by Dan Pfeiffer. And try Blinkist out with our free voucher. Share your personal experiences with your listeners. With Blinkist, you get an unlimited access to read or listen to really a massive library of condensed non-fiction books. All the books you want and all for one low price. Right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash War Room. That's all one word to try it free for seven days and save 25% off your new subscription. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash War Room to start your free seven-day trial or look for the link in our show notes. And you'll save 25%, but only when you sign up at Blinkist.com slash War Room, and we thank them for sponsoring our podcast. Hey, James, one of our favorite segments, the question is, they come in from our listeners all around the world, and they are really good ones. Let's start. John in Atlanta, 
Uh, we should have asked Amanda Carpenter this. He said, Trump turned 75 this year. It's always been ample speculation that he's overweight. He's obese, actually. And if he were to become incapacitated before 2024, give me three candidates, uh, John wants to know, who might lead the Trump wing of the Republican Party. Uh, Ron DeSantis. Yep. I mean, it's, it's not a very clever, it's not a... a, a Unusual, and you know who knows post COVID, but right now that's a huge part of their culture, man. And the other thing is, is that you, you know, as we found out with Amanda Carpenter, you, you you're gonna need these white nationalists. <laughs> They're part of their influence in the Republican primaries is is evidently uh, pretty big. So without them, it's going to be hard to go anywhere. And I think Santos is the type of person that'd be glad to accommodate these people. Yeah, I agree. I, if, if I had to predict what will happen in two and a half years, understanding that things could change, not only could, they will change. So this prediction will be wrong, but I'll make it anyway. And that is that it, it might end up a contest with the major contestants being Ron DeSantis running as Trump heavy against Nikki Haley running as Trump light. Uh, mm-hmm. And given what, Amanda described in Georgia, you'd have to bet on Trump heavy. You might have Mike Pompeo. I wouldn't. I wouldn't discount his chances either. He would be Trump heavy. Yeah, he'd uh, be Trump heavy. And, yeah. and I don't. I, I think Nikki Haley had some, and and maybe it's just my view, but she's just is coming across as just really slippery, and really really opportunistic in in, in ways like. Ben Sass or, 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 or Pat Toomey, he's not running again, or some of these people don't come across that way. No she, question. She, but of course, those Ron DeSantis. across as slippery to me. I, 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 absolutely. But but don't you think DeSantis is too? Yeah, but he 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 doesn't, he, he stays hard right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, he doesn't, and DeSantis is one of these people, like he's a really highly educated man. Oh, I think it's Harvard Law School, isn't it? Yeah, well, we, you know, we know that, whatever. We know the but, 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 but Harvard Law School, and he plays. You know, he's all vested in, in, in something. And you know, we talked about it. The Florida's COVID is not a COVID success story by any stretch of the imagination. But he sold that. They're selling it to the right wing. Um, Michael in Louisville asked a really good question. He says, "Red state Republic, red state Republican legislators are gearing up to pass very restrictive voter suppression laws." What's happening with the John Lewis Voting Rights Act? Does it have a chance of being passed before the 2022 election? James, this is a absolutely pivot. I, I cannot tell you the urgency of this. They are going to, they, they can't win elections in Georgia and Arizona. So what they're going to do is they're going to change it so people can't vote. People who are black, people who are young, and they're going to be successful unless Congress passes that so-called HR1, which may have some imperfections. They can be corrected. And that solely depends on whether you can carve out some kind of filibuster exception. And that solely depends on Joe Manchin. And it will be in some ways more important than the bill they're about to pass next week on COVID relief. This is a critical test. I'm going to say something, and it's not hyperbole. Literally, the fate of the republic depends on this. And I cite as my authority none other than Ron Brownstein. Mm -hmm. And anybody who listens to this show 
with any regularity knows that Ron Brownstein is an almost deified figure on this show. And he has a piece in Atlantic, basically says, if you don't do this, it's the end of it. It's the right. end. Right. And you're not going to control, you know, he lists like seven states. And when you read it, it you saw it going in, you know it going out. It, it Everything depends on this. Literally yeah. everything. Yeah. No, I totally agree. Uh, it's 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 really critical, and it'll be a test of it's Joe Manchin and Chuck Schumer and Joe Biden to see if they can cut some kind of a deal. It's not easy, but I also think it's 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 doable. Hey, Jerry in in Palma, Texas, love the episode with Colin Alred. She said, unfortunately, he's not my congressman, but I really really liked him. She wants to know: Is there any Democratic candidate that you're aware of, James, who would be a Colin Alred type to do a to make a viable run for governor next year in Texas? Well, I'm I'm such a obviously big fan of Collins, and I, I I think you get one of these people not very often, but you know that that's a lot of talented Democrats in Texas. Uh, you know, we'll see, and I think they're hungry enough that hopefully they they can somebody's effective enough that people will coalesce around them, and who knows? I mean, maybe Colin is the guy. <laughs> I'd be to- totally happy with that, but. Uh, you know, Beto, his, he, you know, his high point was his run for the Senate. And boy, his low point is when he ran for president. Oh, man, it's the old line. Is Beto yeah. O'Rourke wanted to run for president in the worst kind of way? And boy, he did, did. it. <laughs> <laughs> he's made, he, he's been pretty kind of smart in this. He, he's redeemed himself a little bit. Yeah. And if you would have told me post the freeze, I would have been very cool on the idea of, of Beto running for governor. I don't know if I'm high on it or not. I, th- I mean, he, he just went ridiculous. I mean, taking videos and getting his teeth cleaned. I mean, that was when you jumped the shark, yeah. right? But maybe he, he maybe he learned from it. I, I mean, and remember, uh, Jen Dylan O'Malley was his campaign manager <laughs> for president. She yeah, seemed to it didn't turn out so well. Bigger and better fastest. <laughs> well, I, I. Uh... You know, I love Colin Alred. I don't know if I, you know, I, I, I worry about, te- it's always a little bit like Charlie Brown, the football, I think it's there and it's going to be pulled away, but at some point it is going to be there. Hey, James, I love this question. Joanne in Marina Del Rey, California. I'm going to read it exactly. She said, how did you guys first meet? What accounts for the fabulous camaraderie and chemistry you oh. have? I imagine the banner we hear in the show would be similar to what you have if we were privately eavesdropping on your dinner conversations. I'm going to tell you the story, Joanne. It, I knew James uh, a little bit before uh, early 1992 at Pennsylvania contest. I talked to him a couple of times, but I know him very well. And I was writing the Wall Street Journal, and we did a story on Bill Clinton in the draft, which, to put it mildly, he did not like. And I remember sitting exactly where I was sitting, the couch in my office with a phone by, and I got a phone call from Paul Begala and James Carwell, and it was the best good cop, bad cop you have ever heard about this story. Paul would say, you know the tremendous respect now we have for the Wall Street Journal, and then I'd hear you, some bitch has been had. And then, then I would hear Paul saying, and we know that this is, uh, you know, that you thought about this, but, and James would say, Republicans has been trying to plant this story. From that conversation, James and I started to talk more regularly, and I thought, this is one of the most interesting people I have ever known in politics. And we began to talk virtually every day at the end, by the end of that campaign, and have for 28 years, our wives say we're like two old guys in the front porch in Boca Raton. And every day we miss, if we miss a day or two, I have a little bit of withdrawal symptoms. 
We talk a lot about politics. We talk about kids. We talk a lot about sports. And we probably agree 97.5% of the time. We disagree occasionally. I think, James, we disagreed on Hillary and Obama in 07. Uh, you get upset when I won't acknowledge that the 2019 LSU football team was the greatest in history. Uh, and I get upset probably when I think you're too critical of the New York Times. But, man, we agree most of the time. But even more important, it's fun, and I learn every day. Yeah, it, it does. And, and we, take, we share a, 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 lot, a lot of things in common. We're the same generation, almost the same age, and same you know, passion for, for politics and uh, sports and able to discuss it. But we, we do have disagreements. I, I don't know how anybody could even remotely disagree that the 2019 LSU football team is not the greatest college football team that ever took the field. But, <laughs> you know, there's some people that say that, you know, Elvis Presley was overrated. What can I say? <laughs> anyway, Joanne, sometime I'd love to have you listen in. And, you know, it doesn't have to be dinner. Uh, as I say, it's, it's, it's virtually every day unless somebody's in Asia or some remote place in Europe. James, next, Corky in Billings, Montana, wants to know, how come Democrats don't fully support President Biden and they sandbag his nominees? Why can't they get behind him? Well, one Democrat, you know, it was near Tandon. Yeah. And it was, it, was, it was one Democrat, to be, to be honest. And when when Nero was appointed, people kind of figured this might happen. I mean, this is not like this didn't come out where this was just destined to get, you know, 87 votes and something came out of left field in, in Derail's nomination. So, uh, I mean, I just, I just take some issue with the premise of the question. And, I do too. Yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry. You know, and I mean, like Josh Howley has finally voted for one to confirm one person. I, I, I mean, it's, it's they're really like a joke. But but everybody knew that nearest thing was going to be problematic and be close, and it, it turned out not to go the way that the president and Ron Klain hoped. Yeah, I, I would have voted for Nir in a minute. She's a really uh, valuable and smart public policy person. She will serve this administration very well. Uh, I think it was a mistake to nominate her for OMB director. It, this was predictable. There were other candidates who I think would have uh, done done as as good a job and would have had an easier confirmation. But Nira Nira will make big contributions to this uh, to this administration. Um, James, this is I think I hope I pronounced this right. Uh, Herzlich in Zurich, Switzerland says, will the Republicans wake up one morning and come to their senses, or should we look at extending our time in Europe? Zerlich, come back. Come home, Zerlich. We need you here. And I don't <laughs> think the Republicans are going to wake up, but Lord knows we need you back here to take them on. You ain't going to make any difference in Swiss politics. Come back home. So I actually been to Zurich one time. And whatever you think of Zurich, it's kind of what you think it is, all right? It's, yeah. it's, a, it's a very efficient, it's a banking city. And the one thing that I, I, I noticed, it, there's not a lot of rocking and rolling nightlife in Zurich. <laughs> it, it's a very it's crazy beautiful, Swiss. it's like on a lake or something, or a brand by it. it utterly gorgeous place, utterly efficient, but, but you, you're not, you're not going to think you're in Mexico City, I promise you. We won Herzlich home, no question yeah. about it. Final oh, I'll question. I'll come see you in Zurich. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
This is Mike in Bay City, Michigan. I've been to Bay City. I guess I've been to Zurich once, but I've been to Bay City. He says, Mike wants to know, how do we live up to our ideals of promoting and supporting free and fair elections and democracy except anti-American outcomes in places like Turkey, Egypt, and Saudi Arabia? Oh, wow. Um, look, democracy is not doing well right now. <laughs> yeah. This is not the heyday of democracy. And, I mean, even our democracy, I think, has got real issues. And, you know, right now we, we need, you know, it's very important that, that, that some of these democracies, look at Poland's democracy and, you know, Hungary and those kind of places that we were very triumphant about are, are, are not working that well. At, at some point we should try to get Ann Applebaum you know, on the show to, to talk about this because it, this is a very relevant point. And the people, uh, Timothy Snyder, uh, I mean, people like that, that, that right. guy is so smart. It's, it, it, it's stupid. He's, he's that so smart. is Anne. They both are. You're yeah, right. Both you are. Get and, the and, right. I, I just participate in democracy. I, I don't defend it. I mean, I, I like the idea if you're an international political consultant, democracy is good for you. You want more of it just for, for your own, I guess young professional in financial betterment, but it, we should really do something because th this is not a given. And shit that we thought, oh, well, it'll all be fine. It'll work out. And, you know, they'll figure something out. Eh, you yeah. know, if we don't get this HR1 passed, hell, I don't know where our democracy is going to go. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not no, a given. No, you're right, James. And I think there's a balancing act. We can't. Uh, we can't determine what system other countries have. We can't nation build. We've learned that. At the same time, we have to represent and I think uh, uh, try to magnify our values, uh, which include uh, human freedoms, human rights, uh, and democracy. And I think the, there is a huge difference in the way the Biden administration will handle this versus the awful policies of Trump. I think I'm happy that Biden... Uh, did you know took a pass on the uh, Saudi crown prince who's a murderer, a murderous thug, and killed one of our people. But I think they have certainly already changed the tone and changed some of the policies on Egypt and Saudi Arabia. And uh, you know it's not going to be easy. You're right. You know somebody should go back and reread a, a get on video Bush's inaugural address in January twentieth of two thousand five. Yep. Right, it it was, it turned out to be like a giant disaster. All right, but the speech itself was well crafted, and it was it turned out to be, of course, bullshit. But it, it it was well crafted, and it was delivered with some passion and conviction. Mm -hmm. But you talk about a, a speech that, as of now, hasn't worn well. Whew. But it's. I think it's a. I'll do that to to my class. I think it's just as somebody interested in history, and not for to to you know be smug about it and you know how stupid the war was and the Katrina response and the tax cuts and the financial deregulation and all of the other stuff that we we remember. But there was that actually democracy had some potent political power at one time that. It certainly doesn't have now, and maybe there was a maybe right. we need to 
think or of go the back and read read JFK's 1960 inaugural, which I think is the most eloquent speech you know since Roosevelt. Oh, it's just beautiful. Yeah. But, burden, but it didn't right? hold up. Yes, we will pay any price. Bear any right. burden. Well, you know, uh, then Vietnam happened. So, so just go, um, but I guess what we'd say is is we 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 can talk about Lincoln's second inaugural, which was not full of any of that. You know, the the judgments of. The Lord are righteous. Right. Well, I guess <laughs> I did. I leave out, out of the Old Testament. You know, FDR second was pretty damn good yeah, too, that's for sure. I think. All right, listen. Keep those cards and letters coming. Uh, you, you are tremendous listeners. We love hearing from you. They are good questions. And at some point, we're going to get uh, Joanne from uh, from California to listen to one of our conversations. Thank you. Uh, absolutely, it, it'd be pretty predictable. <laughs> she may get bored about after a while. Oh, no, latest, you know, lab work. <laughs> hey, James, this is our outrage section. I'm going to do a 180 today and instead pay tribute to one of the most remarkable and influential figures I have ever known, Vernon Jordan, who passed away this week. A confidant of presidents. As you know, he was probably Bill Clinton's most important and closest friend outside of family, a prized board member for any blue chip company. But Skip Gage said Vernon integrated corporate America as much as Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks integrated the buses in Montgomery. He never forgot his roots growing up in segregated Atlanta in the 40s and 50s, and he became a legendary civil rights leader. He escorted two young blacks through a jeering crowd to integrate the University of Georgia, registered black voters facing great dangers in the South, then head of the United Negro College Fund and the Urban League. But for all of his power and prestige, what I remember most about this dear friend is he always was there to help people, especially young black men and women. It, it, it would number in the thousands, those that he had helped and mentored. And I also remember he was great fun. What a storyteller. I told my wife one time I delighted in his company. He was a real man's man. And she said, there's not a woman in Washington who wouldn't want to have Vernon as her dinner partner. That just about covers it, doesn't it? Wow, did he light up a room. I once told him I'd love to see Vernon and Michael Jordan together in the same place. Why? Because I want to see which way the eyes turn. James, think back to Atlanta in the 1960s and that extraordinary group of civil rights activists, Martin Luther King, John Lewis, Andy Young, and Vernon Jordan. Like so many others, I feel a huge void. I try to fill it with reflections on those magical moments with Vernon. America's a lot better because of Vernon Jordan. Yeah, I'll I, I tell you one story and make a point about Vernon's life. First of all, the, the, when the Clinton, Bill Clinton was president, they had a Halloween party, maybe it was in like 93 or 94. And Vernon came dressed as Michael Jordan. <laughs> he looked like <laughs> Michael Jordan. <laughs> he, he came in like the Bulls uniform, you know. Which it, it was just, it just the, the the thing that Vernon Jordan had in in in, and if he had it, like it was a staggering amount. And it is the most underrated quality I think anybody can have. And this is really true in politics. Is he was charming, right? Oh, he had real charm, and when people have that, other people that don't resent it almost. I mean, he'd walk into a room, he'd hold a conversation, you know, if you stop and you ran into him and you talk to him, he, he was engaging, he he lit, he lit you up, but he was he was a charming, charming man. And, and we just need 
more of that. We need more people with the ability to charm other people. And I, I agree. And you know, Mary loved burning. You know, too. I mean, it, and he had a he had a way of being charming and 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 engaging with with with, with women and anything but threatening. Or, or you know, uh, but he was a he was really he he was really something. But I mean, if I if you ask me to, one word to describe Vernon Jordan, I'd say it's charming. He was just no, he was. I, I I just take that opportunity to tell one. I said he's a great storyteller. And one story told that I think is just, you know, one of the great stories of modern American society. As you know, George Corley Wallace was the great segregationist governor of Alabama who Vernon fought. And he did terrible things uh, to black people down there uh, in his first couple terms. And maybe in the 80s, I guess it was, Vernon went down there to give a testament to one of the civil rights pioneers. And they were on a stage and in Birmingham and uh, George Corley Wallace had been shot. He was in a wheelchair then. And he, he was having a lot of regrets. He was trying to make, make up for all the bad things he had done. And he state trooper motioned for Vernon to come over Wallace sitting there in the wheelchair and he bent over and George Wallace said to him, Vernon, this is a crowd out there an integrated crowd out there. He said, Vernon, would you hug me? And Vernon hugged him. I mean, that is really an extraordinary story. And uh, only Vernon Jordan. Uh, he was, God, he was great. It was, and it just prompts me. But our friend Josh Stevens recommended this, and it, it every person that listens to this podcast should, at some point, uh, view the movie Crisis with Robert Drew, who's the director, and it talks about how the University of Alabama was integrated, and just from the standpoint of understanding public policy and just oh. great filmmaking, it, it just I. I couldn't recommend anything to our listeners more than that. With so the, the outrage yeah. of the week for me is, please, this is not the onion, all right? So NOLA.com, which is the, the New Orleans' kind of premier news site, it's the Times-Picayune, it's all been consolidated. They, they have a, they run the lead stories. And this was this Monday. The first lead story is, new clergy sex abuse claims against archdiocese pour in as Monday filing deadline arrives. The kind of backstory is, is the Archdiocese of New Orleans is broke because they had to pay, and they're going to have to pay so much in, in, to victims of clerical sex abuse. It's just, it, it's, it's awful, it's disgusting, it's tragic, it's everything else. On the same, on the, the, the next story on the same page is Archdiocese calls Johnson & Johnson vaccine Morally compromised. I, 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 so, and, and this is a refrain. So, we're, I, I'm Catholic, grew up that way. And people all say the same thing. I can't even get my, my children think it's a, what's wrong with these people? But what are they trying to do? Are, are they really, it, it, when they're in bankruptcy and, and they're trying to have a deadline to process all the claims against them, in in an archdiocese that suffered inordinately at the beginning of of, of this coronavirus, but a large part of uh, our governor John Bell Edwards pointed out to uh, Judy Woodruff on, on uh, the PBS Newshour, largely because no one told us that we couldn't have Mardi Gras, and these guys are doing this. What are they thinking? I, I mean. 
do you, you is this really, a, first of all, I don't get into the theology of it, but I, I know that Pope Francis and Pope Benedict both got the Pfizer vaccine, but I, 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 did somebody not say, look, I don't know what, I don't know what we're doing here, but maybe this is not the best day to do it. Boy, that's for it sure. Just, it just, it just takes your breath away. The sheer, forget the, the, the tortured reasoning that they get to to get there, all right? Like, they don't have, they don't pay people to be press consultants or somebody or something. There's not some priest in the archbishop's office that says, uh, maybe we could do this a month from now. I, I, it just, it, I can't, I, it, it, in, a, in a course of, this is a hotbed for uh, what they would refer to themselves. I'll, I'll call them that. Traditionalist Catholics. See Amy Coney Barrett. All right. See EWTN and everything else. But man, I'll give these people one thing. They 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 could they could screw up a one call parade. Wow. <laughs> Boy, you're right. What what timing? Oh, okay. I, 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 don't get me. I could go on and on about this, but I'm, I'm gonna let it go. Just like this was Monday. All right, where you're bankrupt, your archdiocese has suffered mightily at this, and you're telling people you don't get your claims in by five o'clock today. Of course, you're not gonna you're gonna get pennies on the dollar because they they're all bankrupt. And I I I, I it's, it's just beyond comprehension. But the, the the number of people that just have called me that have stayed you know since the law to the church and tried to thought their kids should, like, grow up in it and get married and, you know. Oh, God, it's just awful. I don't... I'm sorry. We'll move it on. Is. No, don't be sorry. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Hey, thanks for listening to Politics War Room with James Carville, and I'm Al Hunt. And don't forget to send your questions for us by email to politicswarroom at gmail.com or tweet them for next week's show at Politicon. Remember to check out the links to our sponsors in the show notes. And we really thank you for supporting them. It's what makes this podcast happen. To keep up with us every week, subscribe to Politics War Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Please rate the show with a five-star review. We'll be back next week with another show as we continue our 2021 War Room.